0: Well, seeing as it is March 17th, there are some things that I just felt I had to mention this morning. The first is that it's my mother's birthday, so happy birthday, Mom. Um, The second, now I see she's left the room, but I just had to mention Brenda's pants. Like They are just next-level awesome, so if you see her this morning, just make sure to appreciate them. And the third is I was thinking, I've got to say something about St. Patrick. I mean, it's, it's only every few years that St. Patrick's Day falls on a Sunday, and here we, we can actually address this guy who is actually, believe it or not, more than about gathering on Ezra Street and causing a lot of problems. Um, so in the 5th century, there was this guy who is now known as St. Patrick, uh, but I learned some interesting things about him this week. I learned that when he was 16 years old, he was captured by Irish pirates And he ended up living on the island as a shepherd for six years before he escaped back to England. But in that time of shepherding, he learned to pray and converted to the Christian faith. Now, I think the most interesting thing about that whole story is that there are Irish pirates. Like, isn't that the most? Like, who thought they were Irish pirates? I didn't. Anyways, I learned that. But here's something else I learned. That St. Patrick, like Jesus in this story, once fasted for 40 days on the top of a hill where the legend says... That St. Patrick was attacked by snakes, which led him to banish the reptiles from the island. So there are no snakes on Ireland, Accordingly, apparently, according to legend, because of St. Patrick. Now, some people will say that there never were snakes on Ireland. But anyways, it's a great story, and so that's what happened as a result of his 40 days of fasting. But during the season of Lent... We're not following St. Patrick and his 40-day fast. We're actually following Jesus and his 40-day fast uh, into the desert on our own journey, the journey of Lent, 40 days, mimicking this time that Jesus spent in the wilderness. Now, we've already done uh, with Luke chapters 2 and 3. Let's pay attention here, now that we're in chapter 4, to the signs in Jesus' early ministry that were already beginning to point in the direction of the cross. Twelve years ago, I had an opportunity to travel to Arizona, and I spent some time, it was the beginning of a sabbatical leave, I spent some time on my own uh, hiking in Sedona, which is a beautiful place, and a friend of mine who lived there told me that I had to go to this particular rock, and I had to climb up this rock, because it was this really kind of profound place to be, and so I I followed this trail, and I saw this rock. I thought when I showed it, you might not be impressed, so this is a picture I took from the top, and that circle shows a a person below, so it's high, you should be impressed, and when I was at the top of this rock, I have another picture of like the view that I looked out. It was really interesting because I don't think I'd ever been like in a desert or like a true wilderness before. And I was sitting up there and I picked up this little like rock and I was like, oh, this is like the situation Jesus was in. And so I tried really hard, but it didn't turn to bread. Um, I didn't. Um, but I was sitting up there looking out at this whole vast thing. And I was re- recounting this story of this temptation in the wilderness and thinking about just how utterly alone Jesus was in this moment. Now, as Jesus' first encounter here in the wilderness illustrates, not all temptations are to do something bad. The temptation that first comes to him is tell this stone to become bread. Well, I mean, if he was hungry after 40 days, what would be so wrong about making some lunch? There's nothing wrong about making bread, is there? But Jesus answered, man does not live on bread alone. Jesus believed that his father loved him, and he trusted that he would provide for him. Trust is something that I want to talk about this morning that really gets to the heart of temptation. Catherine Doherty writes that trust is the sun that should arise with us every morning and go to sleep with us every night. And so maybe we can best understand the tempter's strategy this particular season as seeking to undermine this trust. Jesus had said that I'm going to trust in God for my provision, and here at the end of this time, he's incredibly hungry, and this tempter says, why don't you just make yourself some food? Again, Not all temptation is to do something bad, but often it is to do something less. Often the temptation is to do something just less than what God has called us to or invited us to do. In Jesus' case, providing food for himself would have interrupted his commitment to depend on God for sustenance during this time in the wilderness. He would have been taking a shortcut. Now in the second scene, the devil tempts Jesus to turn his back on God in exchange for all the authority and splendor of the kingdoms of the world. Now, the irony, of course, is that the devil here isn't giving power away, but taking it. We may not realize it, but it's actually our capacity to direct our worship that is our real power. That's where our freedom lies. Who gets our attention? What gets our attention in life? What do we put value in? Who do we trust? Those things are all within our control, but if we give that up, then we've really given up our freedom. Well, Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. As we talked about this in detail last week, from start to finish, Jesus consistently rejected the draw of power over, choosing instead the path of self-giving love. And in this case, a life wholly dedicated to worshipping and serving God, and God alone. And in the third and final scene, the devil gets a little creative in his tempting. He seems to be inviting Jesus to put his trust in God, but of course not really. Let me go back and read this again, verse 9 and, uh, to 11 here. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So here we have the devil quoting the Psalms. Now that certainly complicates things. I mean, he's saying to Jesus, like, why don't you do what the Bible says? Why don't you trust God? That seems kind of interesting. Because good words, and even Bible words, can be twisted. And sometimes temptation sounds a lot like a friend, like good advice, like what God wants us to do. It's an interesting strategy to get Jesus to trust God for something that had nothing to do with the mission that he was on. I'm going to get him to trust God and distract him from what God had asked him to do. It reminds me of... uh, of kids, you know, if I, it, you can imagine, if you can imagine, like, a, a teenage child, like, some of our youth were here this morning, um, just does a chore around the house without being asked. Like, as a parent, you would know something was up, right? Like, you'd be like, they either broke something, are um, in trouble with the police, or want money. Like, you would know this, right? And I was, th- I was thinking, as I was thinking, I was, I was like, oh, some of the youth here, they're going to be like, dang it, like, you're revealing our plans. So I've got a strategy for you youth. So parents, just plug your ears for a minute. Youth, the best way to... to still unable to trick your parents without getting caught is to just like randomly do chores all the time and so if you like randomly do chores all the time then the time when you're trying to fool your parents they won't know that you're trying to fool them right so that's anyways just the free advice from your pastor or when kids are younger right you, you think about a, a kid who's like all of a sudden like really affectionate like really out of nowhere really cuddly or something and it's just like you like you know that something has gone wrong you know that he has just like probably bit his little sister or something like that, right? But it's is like, okay, I'm going to sh- do something really good here to distract, uh, to get my parents distracted off of this. What have they done? Well, Jesus was singular in his commitment to do his father's will and to follow the Spirit's leading. So he wouldn't be distracted. He wouldn't be thrown off course from where God had called him to do. And so he answered, it says, if you want to be quoting the Bible here, do not put the Lord your God to the test. All right. Because I'm focused on something greater than what you're calling me to. The medieval writer Thomas A. Kempis writes that conflicts are not won by running away. Rather, it is by humbly and patiently standing up to them that we gain strength against our enemies. And this is precisely what we see Jesus doing at the end of his 40 days in the desert. But right at the end of this passage, we read that when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, there's a cliffhanger, if you ever heard one. Like, right there at the beginning, it's like, there's all this temptation, Jesus wins, he defeats the devil every time, and then the devil says, okay, I'll come back. I'll come back. I remember when I was in high school, listening to this uh, guest speaker, um, a youth speaker at, like, a youth event, and he was talking about, and, and this will require a little cultural adaptation here, um, but uh, this was in the time before the internet, but he was talking story about how he would travel like speaking at these youth events all the time and because he wanted to avoid the temptation of being sucked into like the world of pornography when he would stay at a hotel um, because there was no internet there weren't phones or anything like that he would actually go up when he was checking into the hotel and he would ask the person can you please send someone to the room i'll be staying in and ask them to remove the cable for the television and that way, when he got, by the time he got up to his room, he could not watch television. He couldn't surf to some seedy channel and find himself, like, distracted. And, and so I th- remember this story because it seemed quite a dramatic thing to do and realized that it, it tells us a couple of things. First of all, that sometimes we can actively limit our exposure to temptation. There are certain things that we can do to actually just keep ourselves out of situations that are going to lead us down a, a straight path. But also, it's just a reminder that there are certain situations where we're just plain more prone to falter than others, There are going to be situations in life where we're going to be more vulnerable to giving in and giving up on what God has called us to than others. Now, you'd think that being alone and hungry in the desert after 40 days is about as vulnerable as it gets. Well, the next time the devil appears in Luke's gospel is in the opening scene of chapter 22. So he says, all right, I'm going to leave. I'll come back at an opportune time. And the next time he appears is Luke 22. So this must be the opportune time. All right, let's take a look at this. Luke 22, verse 1 to 6. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Was this the opportune time? The time when he could exert the maximum pressure on Jesus and finally get him to give up on trusting God? What happens in Luke 22 is the Last Supper. We learn about Jesus gathering for this intimate meal with his closest followers, including Judas. And, And Luke tells us that Jesus knew He just knew that Judas was going to betray him. And so here he is having this this intimate meal and sharing the bread and the wine and and sharing these words that we read to one another when we celebrate communion in this intimate moment. But all the while, he knew that one of his closest followers, one of this inner circle of 12, was actually going to betray him. What a brilliant strategy. If the devil couldn't get Jesus in his solitude, then maybe he could get him while he was surrounded by the people he loved. Well, you'd think that would be a safe place to be. But I don't know about you, but I'm probably the least likely to trust somebody when I've just been betrayed or otherwise let down by someone I care about. If you've ever been let down by someone, if someone has ever really disappointed you, how likely are you going to be to trust the next person that comes around? When people disappoint us, it's easy to project that experience onto God, too, well, my goodness, if the people that are closest to me can't even stand up for me, well, maybe God won't either. Maybe if the people that I love the most won't be there for me, maybe God won't be there for me either. Richard Rohr writes that moments of vulnerability are the very space where God can most easily break in with fresh experience. In fact, I doubt if God can break through in any other way. But we don't want to be vulnerable. Not only was Jesus aware of Judas' betrayal, but he saw foreshadows of Peter's rejection. If we read a, a little bit further on, verse 31 to 34. Um, so basically, uh, Peter and, and Jesus are having this conversation. And, and Jesus refers to him by his given name, Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. So here the temptation comes back. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he, Peter, replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And so not only is a close friend about to betray him, but now an even closer friend is going to deny that he even knows him. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Has there ever in all of history been a deeper expression of trust than this statement? Jesus, knowing that even his closest friends had abandoned him, prays down, asks God to take this away, and then turns it around and says, Not my will, but yours be done. But how did he do this? How on earth did Jesus move so quickly from take this cup to not my will? How do we do that? How do we move from a place of, like, I don't want to do this, of giving in to temptation to all of a sudden trusting God? What's the first thing that should stand out to us in Luke's description of the events surrounding this epic prayer? Well, it begins, the passage that I just read began, Jesus went out, as usual to the Mount of Olives. So this wasn't the first time Jesus had been up on a mountain in Luke six twelve, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Luke nine twenty eight he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountainside to pray. And then just prior to this passage in Luke twenty-one, thirty-seven and thirty-eight, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him in the temple. So it wasn't a quick turn from, take this cup, but not my will, but yours. It was a well-worn habit. Jesus had a habit of praying, of getting away from the crowds, getting alone with God, wrestling through whatever it was that was tempting him to get off of this road to the cross. It was a well-worn habit. This probably wasn't the first time he had prayed this. You see, if temptation is about eroding our trust in God, and if the foundation of trust is relationship, then a commitment to being in relationship with God will go a long way to helping us overcome temptation. Making the investment of building that relationship, growing in that trust of God, then when we face whatever it is, the temptation is smaller, as big as it might be, we'll be able to say, not my will, but yours. Be done. But there's something else. I was listening to a podcast this week, and they were talking about uh, meditation. Um, Prayer is certainly part of of this larger subset of meditation. They talked about how studies in brain science reveal that people who engage in compassion-based meditation are five times more likely to respond to the suffering of other people. So when people spend time meditating in prayer um, on behalf of other people, and then they show these people like uh, images of people who are suffering, and they're like, scanning their brains while they're doing this, they notice that um, the part of their brain that responds to suffering is just lighting up because they have prepared themselves for this. And so I also, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the story of Jesus praying in the garden and thinking like, yeah, all of this time that he spent in prayer in compassion-based meditation, that all this focus on stuff, it, it made him more likely to give up on his own will and to give in to God's will for what he was called to do. Jesus' habit of tuning himself into his father's heart on a regular basis prepared him to time and time again reject self-preservation in favor of self-giving love. This little passage from Luke 22 continues. An angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, I'd never really noticed in this passage before, but um, the angel wasn't that effective, right? So we have this story, Jesus is praying, and the angel comes to strengthen him, and the next verse says Jesus was in anguish, and he started sweating like blood from, you know, like so he wasn't really strengthened in that moment, but here he is. And there's actually a condition where you can sweat blood. I was reading about uh, something in the Canadian Medical Association Journal from 2017, um, where a 21-year-old woman from... Um, Italy was uh, giving signs, there's a picture here, it's kind of gross, sorry, should have given you some warning of that, where actually blood coming out of her sweat-like glands, like actually sweating blood, and it's something called uh, hematohydrosis. And uh, it's very, very rare, so no one really knows exactly what causes this, but one of the suspected causes is that severe mental anxiety activates the sympathetic nervous system to invoke the stress, fight, or flight response to such a degree as to cause hemorrhage of the vessel supplying the sweat glands. Okay, so that's like a lot of biology for you on a Sunday morning. None of that detail is included there in Luke 22, but what we have is this picture of Jesus like praying in agony. And he's willing to go through with this because he's prayed time and time again because his heart is lit up by the possibility of of living a life of self-giving love. But the anxiety of his impending death is becoming so obvious to him that it's causing this high level of stress. But regardless of the physical response, whether Jesus actually sweat blood or it was just going to sweat that looked like blood, the point is the depth of Jesus' anguish. The point is that he decided, when he came to that point of fight or flight, that he would fight. He decided not to leave. The temptation to leave was, Lord, take this cup from me. That was the the flight response. But he said, no, instead, I'll, I'll choose to fight. I, Lord, I, not my will, but yours be done. As much as he longed to have this cup taken from him, his greater longing was for God. And so there's this really encouraging passage in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. One of the more encouraging Bible verses out there, eh? No one puts that one you know, up and crocheted on their wall. They don't do that, no. Well, we will each in our own way be tempted to abandon our course, to give up in our trusting of God, to trust in ourselves or someone else, to put anything before God. We'll be tempted. But if Jesus struggled to the point of sweating blood, how are we supposed to stand up? Like, that's not really encouraging for us. You say, like, okay, the Son of God was so stressed out about what he's called to do that he almost gave in to this temptation. Um, But how on earth could we ever overcome this? I was talking to Owen, for those of you who don't know, our oldest son is at a university in Hamilton, and I talked to him this last week, and he was telling me about how he's doing in some of his courses, and he told me about an economics uh, test that he wrote, and it was worth a good chunk of his mark, and he said, Dad, he's like, I got my mark back, I got 16 out of 38 I'm doing the math. I'm like, whoa, that's like 42%. Not very good. And I know it's like some of you right now are thinking, what kind of a father tells the whole church that his kid failed a midterm? <laughs> the same kind of father who's not done telling the story. So just hang on. I'm not done. I'm not done. So he was discouraged about this and so he he's asked a friend who was in the same class, like, man, like, I, I thought I did well on that and I bombed. I, I failed. I got 16 out of 38 and, and his friend's like, man, I got 16 out of 38 too. I thought I did pretty good on this. And they're like, oh, that's weird. And then I ask another friend, how'd you do? I got 16 out of 38 too. And they're all like, wait a second, how did we all get 16 out of 38? And as it turned out, it was an administrative error that just published 16 out of 38 for every person in the course. So they fixed it, and he got 32 out of 38. See, I am a good father after all. <laughs> See? If we only listen to the first half of the story about temptation, we seriously miss out. Because if all that we hear about temptation is this idea that, man, you've got to fight, and it's going to be tough, and it's going to be hard, and the devil's coming after you like a lion, then it's just really discouraging. Jordan Peterson says, your choice between good and evil in every moment is what determines the course of the world. You have an ethical obligation to lift the heaviest load you can possibly conceive of. And this is true. There is something that we have to take responsibility for our lives. We have to have responsibility to choose what's right and good and do the hard work that goes along with that responsibility. But if we do all the hard work we can possibly do, if we do all the heavy lifting we can possibly do, we probably still end up with a 16 out of 38. We're not going to be able to get the life that we're after. But the good news is we don't have to. We can get to the 32 out of 38, and we don't have to do it on our own. Because you might have noticed at the beginning of the passage that Sam read for us earlier, how does the story in Luke chapter 4 start out? I'll read it again. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Okay. So he wasn't alone after all. I took a seminary course like four years ago on the book of Luke, and I flipped through my notes when I was preparing this week, and there was a note about this particular passage um, where the prof talked about this Greek word, which means in. And he said, like, it's translated, uh, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but he said, that's not actually correct, because that gives you the impression that the Holy Spirit, like, brought Jesus to the wilderness and, like, kicked him in and said, like, have fun, you know, but he said, no, 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 it's not, he didn't lead him into the wilderness, he led him in the wilderness, like, he was leading him while he was in the wilderness. Jesus wasn't as alone as the story kind of paints his picture, because right at the beginning, we're told that the Holy Spirit was with him. And if we read a little beyond where this morning's passage ended, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, is with him in the wilderness, and then after the devil decides, well, I'm going to have to wait for another opportune time, we're told that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And so all of this talk about facing temptation, about being tempted to to put our trust in something or someone other than God, of allowing these things to, to distract us off the course that God calls us to, we might think, like, how can I ever do this? But we don't have to do it on our own strength. God is present with us by his spirit. And this is the good news on the other side of this nasty news of temptation. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to spend some time in reflection in just a couple of minutes. I want to share a a thought and then I'm going to introduce just a kind of general reflection that we're going to do together um, before they invite us to sing. Pete Enns writes that trust in God, not correct thinking about God, is the beginning and end of faith the only true and abiding fa- path, trust in God. That's what was happening here in the desert for Jesus. The devil is trying to get him to, to abandon that trust in God, abandon that, that God is enough, abandon the idea that, that God can be trusted, that God cares for you, that God will provide for you. And really at the root of any t- anything that tempts us in our lives is that same thing. Believe the lie that God won't provide for you, that God doesn't care for you, that he won't be with you, that he's not with you now. And just give in. Take care of yourself in the moment. But trusting God is the beginning end of faith. Ends goes on to describe trusting God as the kind of faith that remains open to the ever-moving spirit and new possibilities. And so I'd like us to take some time. I'm just going to have a couple of minutes of quiet before the band invites us um, to sing a song together. And I'm just going to put the words of Jesus' prayer up on the screen here for us. And we'll just be quiet for a couple of minutes, and I invite you to meditate on these words. If you're willing, take this cup from me. And maybe you want to think about the thing that is tempting you in your life, the thing that is potentially dragging you off course, the thing that's getting in between you and God. And maybe you want to think of that or picture that or or offer that And, and try to pray what Jesus prayed. If you're willing, take this cup away from me. Try to like Say that prayer in whatever circumstance you find coming to mind and then pray the second half of the prayer. If you're able, yet not my will but yours be done. So we'll take a couple of minutes, read through this prayer, try to make it your own and then we'll sing a song together to conclude our time.